I said to the universe directly, I said, okay, this is what I want. These three things, honesty, responsibility, commitment to creativity. If it's not in the cards, I'll be happily single. But I promise you, I'll never do anything less in a relationship than what I've just described. Whoosh! It was like being shot out of a cannon. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the pod, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Gay Hendricks. He is a mastermind. He's been writing books forever that are changing the world, um, elevating people's lives, making the world a better place. And I've just been wanting to get him on the show forever. So we're really honored to have him. He is author of many books, including author of The Big Leap and co-author with Dr. Katie Hendricks, his mate of 44 years of the book Conscious Loving, which I highly recommend. I think it's a book that was very ahead of its time because I checked when it was published and I think it was published around the time that I was created also. And now I'm reading this <laughs> in my late 20s and I'm like, Wow, so relevant. Like you're so ahead of your time. So thank you for being here. And I'm really excited to chat with you. And I know Lindsay is too. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Uh actually, conscious loving. I started writing that in 1988 and then finished it. Uh, and it was published in 1990. So does that sound about the time you were created also? I was created in 1994. <laughs> I was I was five when it came out, but I was three when you started writing it. So I was, I was here just wait, waiting to interview you about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that book really changed our lives too, because um, at the time, Oprah Winfrey and her show was, had just caught fire big time. And uh, you know, it was, uh, everybody was watching Oprah. So when our publicist, booked us on Oprah with the, you know, one phone call. It was like, boom, instant, going from working with 10 couples in our living room to working with 10 million people on the stage at Oprah. And things have never really been the same since. It's like it <laughs> threw life into a, a cosmic overdrive for the past 30 years. But we're That's very incredible. grateful. Uh, we used to live very near her over in Montecito, but we've moved over to Oh, hi, some years ago. And so we're no longer neighbors, but still like to keep in touch. That's, a, that's incredible. And I, you, you, you got ahead of me because normally I'm like, so tell us your story. And I can't wait to get to Oprah. People still put Oprah on their vision boards. Like that's the goal. You like, you hit it right out of the gate. So I want to hear about how you got into this work. Like what was your journey to discovering this idea of conscious loving and, and, how do you what was it like on Oprah? Let's tell like, here, tell us oh, everything. <laughs> well, we were on there several times, but the first time was uh, I would compare it to go down to your local coffee shop and buy 10 cups of espresso and go chug, 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 <laughs> chug, chug, chug uh, for the next hour. You'll know what it's like being on Oprah. First of all, 
we'd only been on a couple of kind of regional television shows where they have maybe an audience of 15 people that's shot to look like it's 50 people. Uh, but you go out there on stage on Oprah and there's actually like 150 people in the audience and it looks like Yankee Stadium in there because the way it's all stacked up and everything. And uh, so that was uh, quite a thrill ride, um, but it was great. She's wonderful. Uh, I'll tell you just one detail about Oprah that'll let you understand who she really is. At the end of the show, the first thing she does is take off her shoes and then she goes and stands over by the exit door and shakes hands with every single person that's been in the audience that day. Wow. I've been on everybody else's show now at this stage of the game. There's nobody else that does anything like that. As Usually, as soon as the camera or the lights are off, the host is gone. But with Oprah, she's right there amongst the people for the next half hour, 45 minutes. I respected that so much because just because you can't do something like that for the money. You know, you've only, you can only do something like that if your heart's in it. Yeah. Yeah. You, that's not something you have to do. If you're going above and beyond, there's, there's a deeper reason and you're probably just a good person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so cool. So you and your wife, I want, I want to know the love story. Like how did you guys meet, which I'm sure you've written about. And I want to know, like, how did you come to work together? Well, great questions. Well, in developmental psychology, we have a saying that in your 20s, your job is to experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, you enjoy your life. Hopefully, you're enjoying it all along. But that's kind of the trend is, you know, a lot of us don't really discover what our lives are all about until we're into our 30s. And um, in a way that happened for me, I did a lot of experimentation and work on myself in my 20s because I had a disastrous early relationship that just was so painful when I was in my early 20s that I think unconsciously I must have said, I'm not going to go down that path again until I know myself a little bit better. Um, and so I, I did a lot of stuff to learn to love myself in my 20s and actually ended up writing my book, Learning to Love Yourself, based on all of that. And so when I got closer to my 30s, I realized, okay, it's time I dealt with that early relationship pain and got back into the game again. And so I made a commitment to learn what I needed to learn about relationships in order to have a good relationship. And over the period of like when I was 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, right up until I was 34, I was busy trying to figure out what I did that sabotaged relationships. And one thing I came up with that I habitually did and had done all my life was not tell the truth about my feelings. You know, I can't tell you the number of women that have said, you know, what are you feeling right now? And I'll say, I don't know. You know, and that's just the way I was back in those days. I was card carrying member of the Obliviati. And so <laughs> I, <laughs> I just didn't know myself very well. And so I figured, okay, 
I make a commitment to always tell the truth in every situation I can without having to be asked, without having somebody say, what are you feeling right now? Or, you know, are you sure you're not angry? You know, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I said, I'm going to be absolutely scrupulously honest. The second thing I realized I'd sabotaged relationships over and over again by running for the victim position. And once you're locked into the victim position, the other person looks like the enemy or the perpetrator. And that's just the way that particular delusion works. And that was my habitual tendency. And interestingly enough, I would always be with a woman who would do the same thing. And so she would lock into her victim position and blame me and I'd blame her and it'd be like a dog chasing its tail around. And so I did that over and over again until one magic day uh, when I was uh, just about to turn 34, I caught myself in the act of doing just that. I was having an argument with a woman that I'd been on and off with for several years. And I realized, oh, this is like every other argument I've ever had with her. I don't tell the truth about something I'm feeling, like being mad at her or something I've done that I don't want her to hear about. And then I project onto her that she's the perpetrator. I dig into the victim position and then I, I'm captivated by my fear. And that, that's what runs the relationship. And I realized, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. And so I broke up with that individual. Her name was Carol. And I went back to my little cottage that I lived in at the time. And I sat down on the floor and I said, okay, universe, listen up. From here on out, I'm only interested in relationships where both people are scrupulously honest. Both people take responsibility for themselves rather than blaming the other. And here's a third big one. And both people are committed to their own creative path. And because I'd had problems in the past, I'm a writer. So I go in a room by myself for two or three hours a day and I disappear. If the other person is not a creative person, that looks like me not being in the relationship for three hours. But to me, it's sacred time. It would be like a priest or a minister not being allowed to pray, you know, during the day. So I said to the universe directly, I said, okay, this is what I want. These three things honesty, responsibility, commitment to creativity. If it's not in the cards, I'll be happily single. But I promise you, I'll never do anything less in a relationship than what I've just described. Whoosh! It was like being shot out of a cannon. <laughs> less than a month later, I walked into a seminar room uh, in Menlo Park, California, up north from where I live now in Southern California. And I was going to give a, a talk on relationships and body-centered therapy. I'm very into breath work and movement and things like that, too. I was due to give a lecture and then a weekend workshop at a place called the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, which is where I did not know it, but my future wife was getting her PhD and was also the movement therapy instructor there to work off part of her tuition. 
so I walked into this room having just made this huge turning point in my life. And I proceeded to give my lecture and I noticed maybe 50 or 60 people in the room and they were arrayed in a circle. That's the way it was done at that university. And there was this one woman across the way who always <laughs> laughed at everything funny I said. And it just caught my attention, you know, and she would sometimes look around like, come on, guys, aren't you getting this? You know, And uh, so I made a mental note. I need to talk to that woman at the break today. I got to figure out some way to meet that woman. Well, I must have been putting out the great manifestation vibes because at the break, she came over to ask me a question. And so I said to her, oh, by the way, to this day, we cannot remember what the question was. You know, it was, it was <laughs> the mystery question. 40, 45 years ago. Uh, because I said to her, I'm very attracted to you, scrupulously honest, okay? I don't know whether I'm never going to see you again after this weekend or we're going to spend our entire lives together, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm very attracted to that, whatever it is, that thing you had that makes you laugh at all my jokes. And, uh, and I said, so another scrupulously honest, and I said, however, I've got to tell you something. I want to ask you out for a cup of coffee. But I got to tell you something. I just had this big life change where I only want relationships. Both people are honest. Both people take responsibility. And both people are committed to their creative path. On those terms, would you like to go have a cup of coffee with me? I mean, who could say no to that? That's brilliant. And also, like, don't you think in all your years of researching couples and partnership and dating and courtship and all that, that honesty is the way to go. And so many people are scared to do that from the beginning. So like, oh my yeah. God, if I tell this person that I want kids or that ultimately I want marriage or that ultimately I want this, like it's going to scare them off. But like, good, that's not the person. Yeah. <laughs> like put the cards on the table. We it's had fine. Kelsey and I recently, I feel like it was recent, had a whole conversation like bring a list of very important questions like religion, like politics, like things that you want to know about that person. What do you want for your life? Just lay it out first date before you get the appetizer. Like, let's see if this thing has legs. I really appreciate that. And I really want to know what happens next. So did you go for coffee? <laughs> well, uh, if you're watching this on the video, I'll demonstrate how her eyes kind of roll back in her head. Uh, <laughs> but there was a, a short period of silence there where I think she digested this gigantic download yeah. of information. And then she said, instead of, yes, let's have coffee. She said, how about lunch? Mm. Ooh. So she just <laughs> took it one step further there. And so we had lunch and it was deviled egg sandwiches, um, like egg salad sandwiches, mm -hmm. basically. And there we just poured our hearts out to each other and formed a bond. And basically, we've been together since that moment in 1980. Um, you know, it took, there were a lot of details, like I lived in Colorado and she lived in California at the time. And she was just finishing her PhD and I was a professor at the University of Colorado. So I, uh, she couldn't come live in Colorado full time. Anyway, details, details, details. Uh, but uh, those all got surmounted. And 
Uh, yeah. Oh, and also working together. That was a high desire of both of us. I had um, written a a hit book when I was 28 years old, and uh, it, it was an education book designed for parents and teachers, and it was a surprise hit in the education world and then kind of spilled over to the rest of the world. It was called The Centering Book, and it's still around. Uh, it's a book of relaxation activities for children and specifically to use by parents and teachers if they want to help kids relax, you know, at bedtime or um, center themselves in some way. So it's a whole book about that. And like I said, it was a surprise. I thought it was going to sell 5,000 copies a year. The first year it took off like 60,000 copies or something like that, which is a monster hit in the education world. And so I got invited to go around and do a lot of talks at different um, you know, different seminars and things like that. So I had a lot of experience doing things like that. And I'd come to a big conclusion. I realized I, I grew up in a family, a uh, single parent family. My mom was a very strong figure. She was the mayor of the town I lived in. And she was also a newspaper columnist and had her picture on the front page of the newspaper every day with her column. And so she was a very well-known person around the area. And so um, I had kind of watched how that works. And my mother did something that I think made her very unhappy. She was really two different people. When she had her outside hat on, she was charming, you know, shake hands, everything like that. And when that mask was off, though, uh, she was heavily addicted to substances and had a flare temper that would blow your socks off from a mile away. Uh, but anyway, I grew up in a family of very strong women. My two aunts lived up the street and my other aunt lived around the corner and my grandmother. And so um, the, the men were not quite the level of the women. These were really powerful people. And my aunt was a speechwriter for a senator and my other aunt was a uh, award-winning educator. So these were all very powerful people. And I think I developed a, a feminist attitude at a very early age because I would hear them complaining about getting paid two-thirds as much for the same job, particularly my mother, who worked for a newspaper. And you know, there were men there that made her salary that didn't really do much of anything. And so um, I appreciated that. And so I realized once I started giving seminars that they were like 90% men doing the seminar leaders. And there was a preponderance of women in the audience. And so I said to myself, okay, as a society, as a world, we've had five or 10,000 years of male leaders. We've had Mohammed, we've had Buddha, we've had Moses, we've had Jesus, we've had, you know, any number of people like that. We've had kings, we've had princes, we've had generals. The women are just as smart, maybe even a little bit smarter from my observation as a kid anyway. And why weren't they getting the respect, why weren't they taking the lead, that kind of thing. So those were some of my thoughts. And I said, I don't want to be a single 
white male seminar leader, even if I can be the biggest one in the world. What I want to do is create a new paradigm where I work with my partner and the relationship is the hero, not the man or not the woman, but what we do in relationship. And so Katie was right there with me with well, that Well, dang idea. it, where's Katie? <laughs> <laughs> Next time you come back, we're gonna have Katie and you together. <laughs> yeah, you have a little, you have more challenge booking her because she's a lot busier than I am. Uh, I don't know if your audience knows this, but I'm recuperating from a broken leg. Oh, and no. so I haven't been going anywhere or doing much for the past few months. Uh, I broke my femur in two places and I'm getting around on a walker now. But uh, anyway, so, since I don't leave the house very much, I'm uh, around to do podcasts. Oh my goodness. And, uh, but, <laughs> He's but available, sure folks. He's available. <laughs> hey, Lindsay here. Have you seen what's new inside my Align Your Mind membership? Members already get instant access to my best hypnotherapy audios, mindset hacks, manifesting methods, and more on demand right at their fingertips. But now when you join AYM, you'll also get a major VIP level upgrade with my brand new goal-focused hypnotherapy toolkits. These toolkits inside AYM are carefully curated hypnotherapy bundles designed with your specific goals in mind. Whether you desire to call in more money consistently, get out of the mindset rut that you're in, renew your passion and confidence, manifest with more ease and power, cultivate more self-love and inner knowing, or finally release the burdens from your past and heal. Once your subconscious mind is on board with your goal, it's a done deal, and that's what my toolkits are designed to do for you. So if you're ready to rewire your mind, release what's holding you back, and manifest your desires with ease, the AYM membership is where it's at. Just hit the link in the episode description and start embodying your highest potential. Oh, well, thanks for coming to talk to us instead of, you know, <sighs> sleeping healing, hanging out in the I've, sun, doing whatever I've, people do to heal from a broken bone. Yeah. It's terrible. Like everything, there's so many points, Kels, right? Like everything he's saying is just pure gold and I want to go back to everything. But the one, <laughs> if if I may, the one thing that really stuck out first was, I don't know, it was, I'm trying to do the math in my head. So it was either late 70s, likely, uh, when you were having all of this relationship back and forth, trouble questions and figuring stuff out. And I remember you said, I'm going to learn. I, I began my journey of self-love and immediately I'm like, hang on a second. How in the 70s? And I know there was this like age of Aquarius movement and there was a lot of stuff happening in this time, but like people get this stuff all the, all the time in their face, love yourself first, do, you know, work on yourself, do all this self-growth. And sometimes they still don't listen. So what have, like, I know you're just exceptional, but I mean, at the time being, being a man and being in the masculine, or at least as society would see you, how did you come to that? Like, I gotta, I gotta love myself first. Like that's just wow. what needs to Great happen. Question. Well, I have to roll back the clock to 1969, because that's where the seeds were sown. In 1969, you wouldn't believe this today, I'm six foot tall, and I weigh 180 pounds, I look athletic. And, and I am I work out at the gym three days a week when I'm not hauling around a broken leg. And so uh, I'm very passionate about physical fitness and that kind of thing. But when I was 24 years old, I weighed more than 300 pounds. I smoked a couple of packs of Marlboros a day. 
I was in a very painful relationship. I had a job, sort of a love-hate relationship with my job. And I didn't like where I was living, which was New Hampshire at that time. And so everything was wrong kind of in my life. And I also, I didn't know anything about psychology or spirituality. I was an English major in college. And so um, I went out for a walk one day. I'd had a fierce argument with Linda, my then partner, that I had such a struggle with. And I went out to clear my head and it had snowed overnight and there was a place where there was a bunch of ice on the road, but the snow was covering it up, so I couldn't tell. So I stepped on that, and my feet shot out from under me, and I went whoop, down on my back and banged my head, although I didn't knock myself out. Um, but 300-pound person is approximately what a refrigerator weighs, you know, so bam. Um, it just shook me out of my normal sense of myself. And for about two minutes, I had what I now call an out of Hendrix experience, which I actually went down deep inside myself. It was like a light got turned on all the way down to the center of myself. And I saw things that I'd never seen before, like, oh, I see, I've got a lot of old anger that I've never, ever talked about. And, oh, I've got a lot of old grief about my father dying and everything that I've never shared with a human being. Oh, I'm paralyzed with fear. I don't know who I am and what I want. And I'm 23 years old and I figure I'm going to kill myself with my addictions if I don't do something quickly. And so there's this sense of urgency about it. So that was a big thing, seeing my emotions, seeing where they were in my body. I could feel them and I could see them. But that wasn't all. What happened was really amazing. As I turned my awareness on my inner emotions, I saw all the way through them to a big open space I call pure consciousness. I didn't have a name for it at the time, but there was this, it was like this vast ocean or sky of just pure steady consciousness that was my birthright. It was who I was. It was what was underneath everything else was this beautiful, pure consciousness that wasn't clouded with all my repressed feelings and my tense muscles and those kind of things. And that was a, I was going to say a godsend. I think it was a literal godsend because I hadn't realized I, we all carry that around within us. And it's always there for the, the looking. And that changed my life. But here's the big thing that changed my life. I was coming out of that, you know, like, oh, I'm cold. Oh, I'm laying on my back on the road. Oh, I want a cigarette. Oh, I got to walk all the way back home. You know, my old personality was kind of grabbing yeah. me again. But I made this declaration. I said kind of to the universe again, I'm going to do whatever it takes to live in that or live with that state of pure consciousness all the time. And I think that commitment set up a chain of events because listen to what happened. <laughs> I still can't believe this. First of all, I started eating differently. 
I started eating foods that fed pure consciousness. And at the beginning, all I had in the freezer were a bunch of blueberries. And so I ate blueberries for a few days just because I, I couldn't think of anything else. I decided to not eat anything I'd eaten before because that made me weigh 320 pounds. And so stop eating that, start eating things that fed my consciousness. So within a month, I lost 35 pounds, but that's not the cool thing that happened. Right after I got back and kind of got myself established back in my house again, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who had worked at the school the year before, this school for delinquent boys that I worked at. And Neil said, hey, I'm coming up past your house uh, because I'm going to a, a lecture or talk by one of my old Harvard professors in the psychology department. He was my favorite professor and he's staying up near your house and um, I want to hear what he has to say. And I said, well, what do you mean uh, what he has to say? And Neil said, oh, he's had a big life change. He's been to India and he's changed his name from Richard Alpert to Ramdas. And so Ramdas had just gotten back from India and he was living or staying at his father's house, which was about 30 miles from where I lived on this beautiful estate on Webster Lake, New Hampshire. His father was a very famous industrialist in Boston. And so they had this vast, beautiful estate. So there's Ramdas. He's got his robes on and he's got maybe 10 people in their teens and 20s. They look like they're all dressed in Indian clothing and saris and uh, yoga pants and those kinds of things. And I'd never really seen that element of life before. Like I said, I was an English major. You know, I didn't hang around hippies or anything like that. So here are these people around Ramdas, and they were his entourage. After a while, he sat down on a cushion and proceeded to talk for three hours without any notes. And it was the most fascinating stuff I had ever heard about life and his own journey to India and what had happened. It was riveting. And I couldn't even go into a class with juvenile delinquents without three pages of notes, you know, even though these were, you know, 14, 15 year old uh, kids from the streets of Boston. Uh, so I was always prepared with my notes. And I remember going up to Ramdas after his talk and saying, that was fantastic. Where are you getting this stuff from? Because I noticed you didn't <laughs> look into <laughs> look. And he said, this was really mystifying to me at the time. He said, oh, it's all there. I just open up and let it come out. I don't know exactly what I'm going to be talking about. And that sounded like crazy talk to me, although now that's how I live. Now, I mean, you know, now yeah. I know, but at the time, you know, it sounded daft. Anyway, uh, the next thing that happened, I made another bold leap in my life. I said, hey, I just had this big, big experience of falling down and opening up to this new consciousness. What would I do to keep this going? What would you suggest? 
And he said, well, you might do some therapy, but he said, if you're in India, you do a lot of yoga postures, you do a lot of breathing um, practices, you do some meditation. And uh, so I said, okay, where would I get this information? And he did this very strange little thing. He said, kind of flap of his hands. He said, oh, don't worry, something will come to you. And then he turned right away to talk to somebody else. And I knew my 15 seconds was <laughs> over. So later on, I went to the grocery store and I was pushing my cart out and I was in the line and I looked to my left <clears throat> and there on a little kiosk was a bunch of paperback books. And one of them almost seemed to jump out at me. It was called Yoga Youth and Reincarnation by Jess Stern. Probably can still find it out there. But when I picked it up, it was a, an entire book of breathing exercises, meditation exercises, yoga postures. It was like having the entire practice of Indian psychology and spirituality in one 95 cent paperback book. So I just bought that little book and took it home. And it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I just started working through the book sequentially. I did all the yoga postures. And then I did all the, forget what the second one was. Oh, the breathing stuff. And so anyway, I just did all these. By midnight or so, I was pretty flying like a kite anyway from all of the stuff I'd been doing. And then I got to the meditation chapter. And so I just sat down on a cushion and they had a bunch of them, but one of them was just a simple thing where you closed your eyes and every time you had some thoughts, you just said, oh, oh. And so you did that for 15 or 20 minutes. Well, after two minutes of that, suddenly that pure consciousness space opened up without having to fall on the ground on my back or anything. There it was. And it was just like a curtain parted beyond my thoughts. And I realized, oh, it's there all the time. And so I began a dedicated practice of meditation then. Um, and later on, I did more formal practice, like I went to a Zen monastery for a while. And then I learned TM, which I've been doing for 50 years now, and various versions of TM. Um, and I just think meditation is one of the great gifts that human beings have access to. It doesn't matter which brand you do, just, you know, but take 15, 20 minutes out of your morning and just center yourself inside. I, like I say, I haven't missed a day in 50 years just because, you know, why would I want to? Word. Oh my gosh. I love everything I, about your story. First of all, books change lives. Second of all, yeah, I just added awesome. it to my cart. It's in my cart right now. <laughs> Yoga, youth, and reincarnation. Jester, oh, I'm you buying it. it. Nice. It's $5.42. I'm buying it. <laughs> you <laughs> won't regret awesome. it. When and I'll tell you how long ago this was. At that time, paperback books cost 65 cents and 95 cents. The really boomers cost 95 my cents. Gosh. Everybody else cost 65 cents. Wow. Times have changed, but you're negotiating with the universe also is a common theme that I love when you're like, hey, universe, listen up, because I've definitely had moments like that. And it works if you're firm and committed and you hold up your end of the bargain, like the universe will do its end, too. So I think that's 
pretty cool how <laughs> each one of these stories starts with like, hey, universe, listen up. Here's here's what I need. Here's what I'm asking for. Help it a sounds, brother out. It sounds Kundalini-esque, does it not, Kels? This, this fall? I don't know. <laughs> we just had an episode about Kundalini awakening and how it can happen spontaneously for different people, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, would, would you categorize what happened to you that day as maybe like a Kundalini awakening or nah? It's possible, although I, I confess I don't know enough about Kundalini Kundalini awakenings to be able to speak about that. You just got you of... got jolted into place. Your butt cheek was bruised, but your mind was open. <laughs> <laughs> and the world became so much brighter. <laughs> yes. But then, you know, a lot of times what you need to do is follow that up and keep reinforcing that over and over again. That's how I lost. Uh, that's how actually how I discovered first the upper limit problem too, because I ate fruits and vegetables for a month and I lost 35 pounds, more than a pound a day. And even though I was, you know, 300 pounds and lost 35 pounds, I still obviously was fat. And so even though I only weighed 275 pounds compared to 300 something the month before, you know, that's still, uh, you know, I had a long way to go, but I was walking past an ice cream shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'd gone down for the weekend. And I was so feeling good after 35 pound loss and eating fruits and vegetables. I felt purified, you know, and I remember looking to my left and there was this family of four eating a really big ice cream sundae with bananas on it and everything, three different ice creams. And I remember just looking at that thing as it was like a trance. I went in and I ordered an entire one for myself. And I sat down and I, I just totally went unconscious. Slurp, slurp, slurp. And for about 20 minutes when the sugar high was hitting me, you know, I felt like a zillion dollars. But then I remember 20 minutes later, I was walking down the street again. And I got the worst stomach ache of my life. I actually doubled over on the sidewalk and you know somebody said are you okay sir <laughs> no i wasn't okay and uh, so that's when the idea of the upper limit problem the upper limit problem is that we get to feeling good and we get to feeling better and then suddenly some little unconscious part of our mind says you don't deserve to feel this good you know and so then we mess up and bring ourselves back down again. Well, the important thing you need to do with that is recommit and get back going again. So after I had three days of feeling miserable, finally I got the ice cream and sugar out of my system and got right back on the horse again, got back on my diet and um, began to lose weight again. And within a year, I was a hundred and some pounds lighter. Crazy. I have a free gift for you. I'm giving away my Money Magnetics guided meditation. Every time I do this meditation, I kid you not, if I do it for a few days in a row, money magic seriously happens. Once it helped me to hit my highest month in sales at the time, which was over $28,000. Another time it brought in a new opportunity for my fiance to start making 10X what he made before, which obviously really supercharged our household income. Another time it helped me to attract a huge financial gift, but generally speaking, this is the meditation that I use to just always help me keep manifesting more and more money. 
You can download it now at kelseyaida.com slash mmfreebie. Find this link in the show notes and you'll have to send me a message on Instagram to let me know how it goes for you. But knowing you now and having met you and feeling into your personality, not crazy. Because I can see how you you are someone who's very committed, very dedicated, now very self-aware and uh, like I can see I can see your teacher coming through your intellectual coming through the way that you like try and reverse engineer everything and then share it with everyone I just I think that's so awesome I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you author to author I know you're not supposed to pick favorites but do you have a favorite book that you've written out of all the books hmm well I'd say one of my favorites, probably probably my number one favorite, well, it'd have to be a tie with The Big Leap, but I wrote a book um, a year or two before The Big Leap called Five Wishes. And uh, it was a New York Times bestseller at the time and everything. Um, but then I wrote another book right after it, The Big Leap, and it sort of took all the glory away from Five Wishes. But Five Wishes, I love it because I sat down and it almost wrote itself. Mm-hmm. I I was sitting next to Neil Donald Walsh at a dinner party and Neil wrote those books, Conversations with God. Yeah. And great guy. And I've known him for a long time now. We're good friends. But at the time, I didn't know him very well. This was years ago. And so Neil and I immediately agree- agreed that neither one of us enjoyed small talk. And so we said, okay, well, let's have some big talk then. Tell me something about, or he asked me first, he said, tell me something about your life. And I told him a story about how I'd met a man in a library of a mansion of a party I was at. And I'd kind of sneaked off from the party because I'm I'm not a great party person, you know. I'm I'm at my best in situations like we're doing right now, where we're talking about something that I have my heart in, and your heart is in it. And you know, to me, I can do this all day long. And but small talk, you know, a couple of minutes of, hey, how's the wife and kids? And uh, another hot one this summer. Hey, it just drives me crazy. And so Neil and I said, okay. Let's have big talk or no talk tonight, even if we're quiet for the next three hours. So we got swapping stories. And I told Neil the story of meeting this man in the library. And he told me that one good way to organize your life is to picture yourself at the end of your life, looking back on it and say, okay, what are the five things that I did or wish I'd done that would make my life a total success? And then you get that list of five wishes and you start making those dreams come true now. And so I did that. And I came up with these five things. I wanted to learn how to write from my heart I wanted to learn how to live in a state of completion with everybody I know where there's nothing unsaid or unlistened to. 
if somebody's got a problem with me, I invite them to come and talk to me about it, you know, and I wish, hope they do the same with me, but not everybody does it like that. So, so I live in the state of completion. Number three, I really want to know about the creator force in the world. What is it that we really are up to here? You know, we're created, we're creators, but we also got created. Who came up with that idea? You know, so <laughs> who's responsible for this? What's going yeah, on? Who's, who's responsible for this? And uh, so uh, that became a big one of my five wishes. And another one was to simply savor the moments of life, to learn how to be present for the moments of life. So um, anyway, I came up with these. Oh, and the biggest one was to create a loving relationship with a woman with whom I could grow and change over the years. That was before I met Katie. But I think it was directly responsible for setting the things in motion that allowed me to meet Katie. So um, I went about making those dreams come true. And one of them was the relationship. But now I've made all of them come true. And and some of them, of course, are still coming true. And I, when I write today, I want to be able to write from my heart. So even though I came up with that idea 30 or 40 or 45 years ago, I still feel it in my body every day. That's so cool and beautiful. And I was uh, reading a little bit of the intro of that book on Amazon before we were interviewing you because I was like, oh, I need to dig into some of his other books before we get to talking to him because I've only read the one so far. And I was reading a little bit of that story and I was like, of course, they're homies. Like, of course, all these, all yeah. of you, of my I gotta say, people, why am I not surprised? Why am I, I did not, not, I did not know he was such a big deal, Kels. Oprah, Ram Das, <laughs> Neil Donald Walsh, Gay Hendricks. heard of me before. The man's a living genius. I'm trying well, to Well, here's, and, and here's the thing. <laughs> I've heard of your work. Like, I know your name. But I've never, I've never put the work to the name to the face. Well, now I can put it to the face. But like, I know, like you're in the ether, you know, even if you're not buying the books directly or you don't know any of the work directly, like people know you. It's funny, we uh, were just, go ahead. Yeah, well, one thing that happens in my line of work is sometimes, like I wrote my book, Learning to Love Yourself, and it came out in the early 80s. Well, later on in the 80s, I was, sitting in a movie, and I can't even remember the name of it right now. Uh, Talk to me, I think was called something. It was about a famous radio announcer in, in Colorado. Um, but the punchline of the movie was, you know, you're, you're, you're always focusing on people's pain and embarrassment and everything, this, this jockey. And someone says to him, you've got to really learn to love yourself. And I remember sitting back and saying, oh. And another time where I pretty much swooned was Katie and I had gone to uh, um, the Red Rocks concert venue in Colorado. It's a famous outdoor. And we'd gone up to hear uh, Bonnie Raitt concert and Bonnie Raitt had been kind enough to give us a quote for the back of our book Conscious Loving but in the middle of the concert she was going to sing this song about tormented love 
And then she says to the audience, you know, that person sure needs some of Gay and Katie's conscious loving. And I remember thinking, okay, this is as good as life is ever going to get. Just sit here and savor this right now. Yeah. And so, um, so um, but that brings me to my final subject, which is, I think, a problem that all of us ought to work on, need to work on all the time. And that's simply expanding our capacity to receive positive energy. Amen. And, you know, maybe that'll be another show sometime. But right now, a lot of people think manifesting stuff is a lot of work. They need to do visualizations or they need to chant mantras or something. I say come into the core of the thing and just open your ability to receive. Consciously invite yourself to receive more. Make a commitment to receiving more because that opens up the aperture and allows you to bring more into your body without even needing to tell the universe what you want directly. Mm -hmm. I like that. We're all about receiving self-love, manifesting everything you're saying. You are preaching to the choir. We are here for it. We're excited about it. Do you have more books coming? Are you like writing a bunch while your leg is broken? What's going on? I've already written it. I'm just now proofreading it. Uh, it'll come out in February. And it's a 365 days of Big Leap. It's called Your Big Leap Year. Nice. And it's a one day at a time book that takes you systematically through all the way through the concepts in the Big Leap, but in juicy little bite-sized portions you can do every day. Love that. A little step-by-stepper. Uh, it's always good. Yeah. Aw, Yay. Thanks for chatting with us. We could literally chat all day. I, I'm sure. I, I, I'm shutting myself up so hard right now because I know we have to go, but like I have so much more. I love this. I love this guy. Well, thank you if so you much. Have a few more minutes. We'll head over to the Patreon and chit chat a little bit more. But for anyone who's not joining us over on the Patreon, can you please share how they can work with you, where they can read your work, how they can find out more about you, all that jazz? Yes, the easy place to look is Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. That's your jumping off place to all the other stuff we do. You can find out about our trainings there. And uh, and the books are out there everywhere you get books. Uh, I also do my own Big Leap podcast uh, sporadically. I don't do it quite as systematically as you guys do, but I um, every couple of weeks I uh, sit down with myself or somebody and uh, have a good conversation. So that's a good thing to do. And um, always encourage people to do whatever they can to increase their ability to receive every day. Mm. How, how are you going to do that today? Just curious. Have you? Mm -hmm. Good question. Or is it on the Great list? question. Well, I have become, since I broke my leg, I've had to kind of really focus on my ability to receive because you know I've never broken a bone in my life or I haven't even had a cold in 25 or 30 years and so I'm not used to being on the receiving end of caretaking but I'll tell you break a leg and you get on the receiving end of that quickly you know and so <laughs> that's been a big stretch for me is getting out from my I can do it all myself attitude, you know, to, okay, I'm open to being helped any way I can. 
And so like this afternoon, I have a body worker coming over to play with my leg for a while. And yesterday I had a myofascial expert, um, Ronnell Wood, come and do a myofascial release session on my wounded knee. And, um, you know, just try to soak up as much good vibes as I can. Love that. Receive. What are you going to do, Kels? This is a good round table. I want oh everyone gosh. who's listening and watching to answer this for themselves too, but what are you going to do, Kels? To receive. I to expand your capacity to receive. I might take a nap and <laughs> I might ask my husband for a shoulder massage because mm. that sounds really good. <laughs> mm. And sometimes that it's hard to good. ask. You're like, oh, he has to do his own stuff. Like he probably wants me to like play with his hair or something. But what about me? I want a shoulder massage. So maybe I'll yeah. ask for one today. <laughs> yeah, you should. Get that massage in that nap, girl. What about you? Mom I, of three. Uh, mom of three. Well, two out of three are at school. The other one's a little sick today. So he's home. It always happens in the beginning of the school year. All moms know this. Your kids will get sick and stay home within the first two weeks. But I think my thing, my biggest challenge is allowing the universe to work for me. So I think I'm just going to ask that question that Dr. Hendricks said so well, which is um, I'm excited to receive any kind of help from the universe that it's willing to offer and just let that be my daily, <laughs> my daily request. Like any help you got, I'm here. I want it and I need it. Thank you. <laughs> Love that. Yay. Well, if you guys want to chat with us for another, or I guess not chat with us, but you can chat at us in the comments on Patreon. Mm -hmm. Go to patreon.com slash high vibe. We'll see you guys there. We love you so much and have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Thank you to everybody who has left a review and shared the podcast with friends and family. We super appreciate it. It really helps the show a lot, especially because our goal is to get over 1 million downloads before the end of 2023. And we definitely need and appreciate your help to do it. You can further support the show by joining patreon.com slash high vibe to get exclusive content, extended episodes, bonuses, and more. Thanks again for listening. We love you so much and we'll be back next week with another new episode. Bye. Bye.